we want to give a big thank you to our very first excavator level patron, Lauren. Your support makes this podcast possible and puts us closer to our goal for a new microphone setup. Thank you so much, Lauren. We love you. And if you are not a patron of this podcast yet, you can pick your level of patronage at patreon.com slash dig podcast. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. When I think of the so-called scramble for Africa, the period when, in the 19th century, Europeans tricked, traded, and coerced their way across sub-Saharan Africa, laying claim to whatever land they could by whatever means necessary, there are a few iconic images that spring to mind. One is a political cartoon published in Punch in December 1892 and conveys the audacity of Europeans in sub-Saharan Africa. It depicts Cecil Rhodes, larger than life, standing with one foot in Egypt and the other in South Africa, holding up a telegraph wire. Titled The Rhodes Colossus, the artist rendered Rhodes in a safari adventuring outfit, complete with musket and ammunition satchel, with his head literally in the clouds. The cartoon ran alongside announcements of Rhodes's plans to construct a transcontinental railroad and telegraph system to connect Africa from Cairo to Cape Town and was widely reprinted thereafter. Today's episode isn't actually about Rhodes, although we will at some point have to come back to him because, geez, what a mega imperialist. Mm -hmm. But among other things, this image conveys to me the significance of individuals in the European colonization of Africa. Of course, this does not mean that Rhodes or men like Henry Morton Stanley or even German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck single-handedly brought Africa under European rule. That process was facilitated by the thousands of missionaries, businessmen, soldiers, and private police forces employed by the religious, economic, and military institutions of civilized Europe. But these individuals were essential to the larger effort to normalize imperialism. They were national heroes, adventurers, larger-than-life pinnacles of Europe's civilizing mission in sub-Saharan Africa. To that point, too, there were also individuals who were essential to combating some of the more devastating effects of imperialism in sub-Saharan Africa. Men like Joseph Conrad and Roger Casement revealed to Europe just how atrocious European imperialism could be. And that's really just to name a few big names, right? There are half a dozen or more, including Mark Twain and E. Morley, that Adam Hochschild discusses at length in his account of the international effort to end abuses in the Belgian Congo, uh, King Leopold's ghost. Which is not to say that Conrad and Casement were perfect saints who took their first breath and launched immediately on a career of anti-imperialism. Nor did Stanley, in particular, set out on his adventure in the Congo, intending to open it up to the horrors of King Leopold's rubber extraction industry. Stanley, Casement, and Conrad were, in a lot of ways, as much tourists as arbiters of imperialism. All of these men treated sub-Saharan Africa as if it was theirs for the taking, where they could play and profit as they saw fit. All of these men were essential to European imperialism in sub-Saharan Africa. Its rise, its fall, and its impact on the people it crushed along the way. So today we're going to take a look at where Conrad, Casement, and Stanley's stories intersect. In the Congo, or as Joseph Conrad called it, in the heart of darkness. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley-Cousins. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Dig. 
We are so thankful for all the individuals and businesses who've supported this podcast. And today we want to give a special shout out to the farmers who own Cabot Creamery Cooperative. Some of you may know that I have been side hustling for the Cabot Marketing Department for over a decade. And so these folks are really near and dear to my heart. But all of us at DIG only buy Cabot cheese because we know that it's going to be delicious, but also because we know we're supporting a really wonderful business model, uh, this cooperative model, with 100% of profits going back to the farmers. And as of 2019, the Cabot Co-op will have been around for 100 years. To make it through another 100, they will continue to invest in sustainability. Cabot makes the world's best cheddar. That's a given. But it was also the first dairy to earn a B Corp certification. Our farmers are committed to good land stewardship, and they're committed to all the communities and the people where they work and farm. Every Cabot dairy product that you purchase ensures the future and the next 100 years of every farm family from New York and New England who make up our co-op. You can go to the Cabot website, cabotcheese.coop to sign up for eCheese to get recipes and coupons to learn about our gratitude department or to get more information about visiting one of our retail stores where you can sample every flavor of cheese for free. That's cabotcheese.coop. Thank you Cabot Farmers for supporting Dig History Podcast. Unlike coastal Africa, the Congo Basin, which occupies most of the interior of the sub-Saharan African continent, was largely impenetrable by Europeans until the 19th century. The basin includes all the tributaries and drainage regions of the 2,920-mile-long Congo River, totaling around 3.7 million square miles. Huge. Today it contains 8% of the world's forest-based carbon, and contains the largest unmolested stand of tropical rainforest on the planet. The river itself was unnavigable by European ships in the early centuries of exploration, and the basin's sizable mosquito population and diseases deterred most Europeans from venturing too far into the rainforest. Those who did generally died or were greatly reduced by malarial fever. By the end of the 18th century, with the invention of steam-powered boats, however, and the discovery of quinine as a malaria treatment and prophylactic, Europeans had the essential tools for their incursions into the interior of Africa. Have you ever seen the movie The African Queen? No. I, I wonder if that's the river that they're on. Probably. It's it's all about Europeans trying to travel down an African river and getting screwed. It's either that one or it's the, the Nile. Those are the only those are the Yeah, two big I'm ones. not sure which one it is. Most of the Congo Basin was organized in decentralized political systems, as one would expect of dense forested territory that discouraged conquering armies from moving quickly to maintain a kingdom. The most powerful centralized powers in the region prior to European invasion were the Congo and the Cuba, both located on the outskirts of the basin itself. The Congo Kingdom was located in the southwesterly most region of the Congo Basin, having been founded in the late 14th century and surviving in some capacity until 1914. At times, the Congo traded in ivory and slaves with the Europeans, whom they would have encountered early on, being on the coastal edge of the basin. Though their king was defeated by the Portuguese in 1665, the kingdom continued to exist in name until finally being divided up by Portugal, Belgium, and France at the Berlin Conference. The Cuba, on the other hand, were more a federation than a kingdom, made up of around 20 Bantu ethnic groups that had, by the 18th century, coalesced into several decentralized states. The Cuba lived deep and south enough in the basin that they were not really impacted by the slave trades on either side of the continent, the Arab slavers who sold to the Indian Ocean and the European slavers who sold across the Atlantic. After the Belgians laid claim over the majority of the basin at the Berlin Conference, King Leopold's emissaries attempted to bribe the Cuba king with gifts in exchange for his people's land, which the Cuba king refused. Eventually, particularly under the rule of King Quetepe of the Cuba, the Belgians were able to exert control over the Cuba Federation, forcing them to work collecting wild rubber. The Cuba, however, resisted throughout Belgian domination. 
It was the Cuba, for example, who attacked Belgian company men and police during the Tonga Tonga Rebellion of 1904, which we'll get back to later in the episode. But the Cuba people's prior unmolestation by the European slave system also left them largely ill-prepared when the Europeans finally showed up on their doorsteps. Most had never seen white people before, which instilled a healthy dose of fear, but they also had no access to modern weaponry that would have made resistance more effective. They combated rifle-wielding missionaries with spears and arrows. While not all Europeans were murderous monsters, few took stock in indigenous peoples' efforts to maintain their sovereignty. In the 19th century European imperialists' minds, their way was the right and better way, and the Cuba or Congo or whoever else would see that in time, or they would suffer the consequences. At the Berlin Conference of 1885, the negotiating European men had to prove effective occupation in order to draw their border around a particular territory. This meant that they had to have proof that they'd already established a solid foundation for their imperial hold there. Schools, churches, roads, courthouses, prisons, and other basic infrastructure were the building blocks of imperialism. It was rarely the British, French, or Belgian government itself, however, that sent engineers and judges to these places to establish that infrastructure. The earliest incursions of European imperialism in sub-Saharan Africa were much like the rest of their empires. Missionaries and stock companies took steamships and hits of quinine to bring Jesus to the heathens while taking their rubber, ivory, and labor. Another iconic political cartoon depicting the scramble for Africa, created in 1884 during the Berlin Conference, is a French-language critique of German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who holds a knife over a large cake named Africa, which he has sliced up. The other white European men around the table look on with shock, though quite obviously they will be getting their own slice of cake soon enough. The critique was not because the French didn't want a piece of the African pie. Instead, they were unnerved that the newly formed German state, led by Bismarck, was so brashly making demands and claims on land that the French, Belgians, British, Portuguese, and Dutch had been comfortably absorbing into their empires for decades. This image nicely sums up the callous ethnocentrically imperialist way, 14 men stood around a map of Africa at the Congo Conference of 1885, also known as the Berlin Conference, and debated which parts belonged to their respective nations, literally carving it up and drawing new lines on a map to delineate one European empire from another. Bismarck organized the conference, and with the implicit threat of come to the table or my very powerful army will simply invade the places I want and take them anyway, the other Western powers showed up. But the Berlin Conference of 1885 merely formalized, through its political leaders, the longer process of colonization that Europeans had been imposing upon Africans for at least the 19th century, and arguably as far back as the 16th century, right? And as one would expect by the carelessness of Europeans like Bismarck slicing up a continent as though it didn't belong to the indigenous people or drawing lines on a map with no regard for existing ethnic, cultural or linguistic differences and tensions, imperialism was devastating to the colonized people. Henry Morton Stanley probably didn't know what horrors his adventuring would ultimately bring down on the people of the Congo. It's hard to say if foreknowledge would have deterred him anyway. As biographer Tim Geale suggests, he was not the unwitting dupe that he played when shit hit the fan. He was, however, an interesting guy. Hmm. His impoverished Welsh mother abandoned him as an infant, and he lived in a workhouse from age 6 to 15. He then hopped a transatlantic ship as soon as he was released and ended up in New Orleans, where he changed his name and his accent and started living as an American. He fought first for the Confederates in the Civil War and then briefly for the Union uh, before being discharged uh, for illness. Um, after he recovered from his illness, he joined the Union Navy, which he quickly deserted, Seeking more exciting adventures. Uh, that's wild. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yep. 
Still in his early 20s, he traveled far and wide as a correspondent for the New York Herald. He traveled to the Ottoman Empire and was kidnapped, and then witnessed the British massacre of Ethiopians at Magdala in 1868. Then in 1871, he convinced his editor at the Herald to fund an expedition in which he'd traverse the Congo in search of the missing Scottish missionary slash adventurer, Dr. David Livingstone. Though he never actually uttered the words, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, when he reached the man's hut on the shores of Lake Tanganyika, his success made him an international sensation. The world, and Africa in particular, it would seem, was his oyster. After he found Dr. Livingstone, he got funding from both the Herald and the London Daily Telegraph to head back out into Central Africa to search for the source of the Nile. In addition to supposedly being a missionary, he only succeeded in converting one person in all of Africa, and that person lapsed after a few years of trying out Christianity, but which, let's be real, lots of people do. (laughs) Dr. Livingstone had sought to map the rivers and lakes of Central Africa, including the source of the mighty Nile. He died shortly after Stanley found him. It seemed to the editors of the Telegraph and the Herald that sending Stanley, the golden boy of American Welsh adventurers, (laughs) to finish Livingstone's work would be worth the expense. In 1874, Stanley set out with over 228 men, including three other white Europeans. He chronicled his journey, after the fact, in Through the Dark Continent, starting... I know. <laughs> and supposedly he's the first to coin that name for... Really? For, yeah, for um, Africa. Um, he started at the island of Zanzibar in East Africa and cut straight through the Congo Basin to just beyond the Atlantic coast in 999 days. On the nosy. He first confirmed Livingstone's uh, suspicions about the source of the Nile, which was Lake Victoria, and then followed what Livingstone called the Walaba River... Um, only to discover that it was actually a head source of the Congo River. Around half of his expedition force died while traversing the continent, most drowning when attempting to navigate the rapids of the Lualaba. Still in a region of the world dangerous to any strangers, it was a pretty resounding success. Uh, When he got home, Stanley wrote of his adventure in Through the Dark Continent. Somewhat bizarrely, he exaggerated aspects of the journey pretty needlessly. Uh, in the long run, the, those erroneous elements opened him up to ridicule and mistrust. And because he'd also fabricated so much of his earlier life, he made up an adopted father, uh, claimed he was born in New Orleans, etc. He was really pushing the boundaries of Victorian respectability. His fallacious travel narrative undermined his otherwise, by 19th century British standards, extraordinary journey. Still, despite some PR problems, Stanley stood out as the foremost European adventurer of his time. Have you ever seen the formerly BBC show uh, Top Gear? No. Okay, so it's a car show, right? They like test out different cars, whatever. But they're they're like well known for like usually it's like one one episode a season is like this big blowout like travel episode, Mm -hmm. and they do one where they drive across Africa trying to find the source of the Nile, and they keep like pretending that they're like Livingstone and Stanley like trying to find this, even though like people already found the source of the Nile, but it's like they're they're like trying to find it again or whatever, and it's like it's all mostly fake but it's like it's hysterically funny and also sort of inappropriate um but that's what i was thinking while you were doing this okay anyway in seven no in 1876 king leopold ii of belgium founded his self-proclaimed philanthropic association the international african association in reality, this was a front for a company of which Leopold was the proprietor. He used his position and the company's disguise to hide his true intentions for the Congo, namely the brutal extraction of its seemingly abundant rubber and ivory resources. Because of his experience in the Congo, King Leopold II approached Stanley about returning to the jungle in the name of the IAA. At first, Stanley refused, but Leopold did not give up easily. 
In the end, Stanley agreed and signed a super secret five-year contract for an exorbitant 1,000 pounds a year, which was a lot. It was. Okay. Yeah. He would carve out a caravan path across the jungle and set up strategically placed trade stations. Nominally, Leopold's goal was to, quote, open the Congo up to international trade. With Leopold's private police force and other company men in his expedition, however, Stanley quickly realized that his mission was less than philanthropic. When Leopold admitted what he really had in mind, he was explicit, quote, it is a question of creating a new state as big as possible and of running it. It is clearly understood that in this project, there is no question of granting the slightest political power to the Negroes. That would be absurd. According to biographer Tim Geale, Stanley was shocked. On the contrary, he told the man who shuttled messages between him and the king, the Congolese will retain their own tribal chiefs and be as jealous as ever of every tribal right. Despite his compunctions about the sanity of attempting to create a Belgian state in the Congo, Stanley did not stop or cancel his contract. He did, according to Giel, try to treat the indigenous peoples he negotiated with fairly. In October 1882, Leopold wrote angrily to Colonel Strauch, that man who shuttled messages back and forth between Stanley and the king, quote, the terms of the treaties Stanley has made with native chiefs do not satisfy me. There must at least be an added article to the effect that they delegate to us their sovereign rights. The treaties must be as brief as possible and in a couple of articles must grant us everything. Stanley made treaties that agreed upon rent prices and lease lengths rather than outright claiming that land for, Be for Belgium. Leopold sent secondary negotiators to in to overwrite Stanley's agreements or just forged new ones to lay claim to the Congolese jungle. Leopold's agents, Stanley included, were not the only imperial actors seeking dominion over the natural resources of the Congo. French and British missionaries and explorers were crawling their way through the basin, and in the north, Tipu Tip, the most powerful Zanzibari slave trader, was pushing west in search of potential slaves to sell in the Middle East and Arabia. Stanley's initial survival of the Congo in the 1874-77 venture prompted Tipu Tip, who'd previously thought the Congo was impassable, to strike quickly, raising villages, killing men, and enslaving women and children. In order to protect the other Congolese interests that he'd secured for Leopold up to that point, Stanley negotiated an agreement with Tip, granting the Zanzibari a river station just above Stanley Falls, which would temporarily halt European navigation to the Congo River any further upstream. Shortly after Stanley concluded his first five years in Leopold's employment, the European powers met in Berlin to carve up Africa. Leopold, with his fistful of forged and real treaties with the people of the Congo and evidence of his extensive trading stations and roads throughout the territory, successfully laid claim to most of the Congo. According to my to friend of the show and my doctor brother, Dean Pavlakis. Oh, yes, he is your doctor brother. We have the same advisor. Ah, so cute. Um, quote, all lands not actively cultivated or inhabited by Africans became Leopold's property. In some places, granted to a concession company in exchange for fees and an ownership stake. In remote districts, away from prying eyes, a few Europeans backed by an impressed African army terrorized villagers to deliver rubber, provisions, and men. End quote. Though Leopold himself would never set foot in the Congo before his death in 1909, his company would ravage its natural and human resources with impunity. Jerk. As we've already noted, the primary resources the Belgians and other Europeans wanted out of the Congo was rubber and ivory. With the formal slave trade long since abolished and slavery itself technically ended in most European empires, slaves were no longer a trade commodity among the Europeans. For those living in the Congo Basin, as we just said, the Arab slavers like Tip continued to be a threat. 
But life under Belgian rule, it turned out, was little better than enslavement. The indigenous men and women who could not fight back were forced to harvest wild rubber for the Compagnie du Kassai, King Leopold's private company. The company employed its own police force, which enforced the set quotas that the workers were required to meet every week. The police were granted license to use whatever means they deemed necessary to cow the laborers into submission. By the time Joseph Conrad, a young Polish-British writer seeking thrill and adventure himself, sailed up the Congo in 1890, there were already rumors flying around European ports about the extreme lengths employed by the Compagnie enforcers. In addition to hefty fines and public beatings, there were tales, and ultimately evidence, of the more sadistic enforcers cutting off the limbs of the children of workers who did not meet quotas. (sighs) Yikes. These rumors were ultimately confirmed by Roger Casement in his 1904 report for the British Foreign Office, which documented the horrors of Belgian imperialism in the Congo. This is the same Roger Casement. Yeah. He's my Roger Casement. Wow. He's the best. Wow, that's really fascinating and really sad. Yes. Aw. I hate your episode. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Henry Morton Stanley was absolutely a facilitator of empire. Like so many men who left Europe and ventured into Africa, he believed in the rightness of what he was doing, in the opportunity to civilize the savages of the dark continent. As he wrote in 1878 in his book, quote, the savage only respects force, power, boldness, and decision, end quote. Now, while Gio argues that he attempted to approach his work for Leopold with a bit more diplomacy than Stanley's own blustering suggests, ultimately, he ushered in an era of utter horror for the so-called savages of the Congo. But he also imposed upon the people of the Congo with the nonchalance of any other tourist, careless of the mess he would leave behind, thinking only of his own gain and gratification. It's bizarre to me how much of the stories of men like Stanley start out as these sort of carefree, adventure-seeking lads, up for anything, unaware of the destruction they would leave in their wake. Privilege. Mm-hmm. Joseph Conrad made his writing career on tourist imperialist adventures as a merchant marine, first for the French Empire and then the British Empire. He also spent several years in the Congo aboard a Belgian trading steamer, just like the protagonist of The Heart of Darkness. Almost all of his writing takes place in settings he encountered while traveling for work. Though the son of a radical Polish nationalist, Conrad fell in love with Britain and seemed for much of his young life enthralled with the British imperial system. Whatever Conrad believed about the greatness of British imperialism, however, was eventually discolored by his experiences on that Congo steamship. Unlike Stanley, Conrad's writing reveals some self-reflexiveness about the injustices and horrors of imperialism. Heart of Darkness, though also critiqued for racialized characterization of the indigenous peoples of the Congo, has long been heralded as an anti-imperialism novel. Conrad effectively critiques the callousness of that tourist imperialist in his narrator's observations of the Europeans, Belgians, but also Britons, Germans, and Frenchmen, who they encounter in the Congo. In the book, the protagonist, Charles Marlowe, epitomizes the thoughtlessness of the naive adventurer. Hearkening back to that 1884 cartoon of Bismarck slicing up Africa, of the European delegates drawing lines on a map of Africa, In the first part of the novel, Morton Marlowe talks again and again about maps. Now, when I was a little chap, I had a passion for maps. I would look for hours at South America or Africa or Australia and lose myself in the glories of exploration. At that time, there were many blank spaces on the earth. And when I saw one that looked particularly inviting on a map, but they all look like that, I would put a finger on it and say, when I grow up, I will go there. But there was one yet, the biggest, the most blank, so to speak, that I had a hankering after. True, by the time I was an adult, it was not a blank space anymore. It had got filled since my boyhood with rivers and lakes and names. It had ceased to be a blank space of delightful mystery, a white patch for a boy to dream gloriously over. It had become a place of darkness. 
But there was in it one river especially, a mighty big river, that you could see on the map, resembling an immense snake uncoiled, with its head in the sea, its body at rest, curving afar over a vast country, and its tail lost in the depths of the land. When Conrad had his character, Charles Marlowe, describe his fascination with the unexplored Congo, he reveals a great deal about the entitlement and ethnocentrism of white European men in the Victorian era. From his boyhood to adulthood, Marlowe thought nothing of the people who lived in that blank space represented on the map. For Marlowe, when that place on the map was empty, it represented promise. When his predecessors, men like Henry Morton Stanley and David Livingstone, filled in the details of the map with rivers and lakes and the dense vegetation of the Congolese jungle, the childlike possibility was replaced with the danger and darkness of the untamed, wild, unknown. Still, it was someplace he wanted to go, and so go he would. It was his right, his privilege. And so when the opportunity presented itself, he went. Then I remembered there was a big concern, a company for trade on that river. Dash it all, I thought to myself, they can't trade without using some kind of craft on that lot of fresh water. Steamboats. Why shouldn't I try to get charge of one? I went on along Fleet Street, but could not shake off the idea. The snake had charmed me. I flew around like mad to get ready, and before 48 hours, I was crossing the channel to show myself to my employers and sign the contract. I had no difficulty in finding the company's offices. It was the biggest thing in the town, and everybody I met was full of it. They were going to run an overseas empire and make no end of coin by trade. I gave my name and looked about. Deal table in the middle, plain chairs all around the walls. On one end, a large, shining map, marked with all the colors of the rainbow. There was a vast amount of red, good to see at any time, because one knows that some real work is done in there, a deuce lot of blue, a little green, smears of orange, and on that east coast, a purple patch, to show where the jolly pioneers of progress drink the jolly lager beer. However, I wasn't going into any of these. I was going into the yellow, dead in the center, and the river was there, fascinating, deadly, like a snake. It's a good passage, right? Marlowe presented himself to the company. Though there were numerous British ventures exploiting the labor and resources of sub-Saharan Africa, Marlowe crossed the channel to Belgium to apply for a position in King Leopold's private Belgian Compagnie du Casset, which, by 1890, ran the rubber and ivory markets in the Congo. As he gives his name to the secretary, his eye is drawn again by a map, this time displaying the rainbow of European imperialism around the globe. As a British citizen, he is satisfied to see his home empire well represented in red. Blue is France. Green is the Portuguese. Orange is the Dutch. And purple, those lager-drinking fellas, is, of course, the Germans. But has his eyes set on Belgium's yellow, dead in the center, taking up a territory some 76 times larger than Belgium itself. In the 19th century, European men saw the quote-unquote empty spaces on maps of Africa as an invitation. Of course, the maps they were looking at were literal fabrications of European domination. They drew lines on these renderings to carve up places like East Asia, Africa, and the Middle East into spheres of influence and claimed territories. Conrad surely recognized the high-handedness of this European tendency, writing that thoughtlessness into Marlowe. Map making is so weird. It is. It is weird. I was thinking while you said that, I mean, they, I mean, the same thing, they did the same thing in North America, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. it seems very, I was like, wow, you know, this territory is 76 times larger than Belgium, but like, how much bigger is Canada than England? Mm-hmm. For sure. You know, um, yeah, it's wild. Yeah. It's wild. Hell, like Spain and South America. No kidding. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, 300 years earlier. But yes, map making is really strange and really arbitrary. And there are so many like weird, small, weird stories about like border disputes, even like right now. Yeah. You know, like where one border is. Isn't there some sort of dispute about Vermont? Weren't we having a conversation about this at one point? Yeah. I forget what it is, though. Anyway. It was 
That was the plot premise for the most recent Super Troopers movie. <laughs> is that some part of Canada is really part of Vermont because of a border dispute. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's probably important. <laughs> um, so throughout the novel, Marlowe, um, or Conrad, through Marlowe, describes colonists as the flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devils of a rapacious and pitiless folly. The mission itself of civilizing savages, right, was that rapacious and pitiless folly. That was obvious to Conrad no more so than in the Congo in 1890. In 1903, Conrad, writing a letter to his friend, Roger Caseman, would describe Heart of Darkness as an awful fudge. Though he was probably just being modest because Marlowe's adventures adventure was a bit more glamorized than uh, Conrad's own Congo experience, Casement would have known just how realistically the Heart of Darkness depicted the Congo in 1890. The violence his characters witnessed, the fear and death that awaited colonist and colonizer alike haunted Conrad and are woven through the novel in vivid, unsettling detail. On that venture in 1890, Conrad first met Roger Casement, the dynamic young Irish man who worked as a consul for the British Foreign Service for nearly 20 years. Like these other agents of the British Empire, Casement got his start in commercial interests, working in the Congo in 1884, for example, for Henry Morton Stanley, recruiting and, recruiting and supervising workers to build 220 miles of transcontinental railroad to bypass the Congo River. Wow, lots of transcontinental railroad in these episodes, too, yeah, huh? what's happening. When they met in 1890, Conrad and Casement still believed in the civilizing mission of European imperialism. By the time the two left the Congo, Casement in 1891, Conrad in 1893, both had lost their rose-colored glasses. According to Dean Pavlakis, British efforts for reform in the Congo started with the Aborigines Protection Society, led by H.R. Foxborn and Sir Charles W. Dilk, who'd sent a memorandum to Prime Minister Lord Salisbury in 1896. The British government ignored the plea for action. The Foreign Secretary, Lord Lansdowne, was, quote, reluctant to interfere in another country's business and felt that no colonial power's hand, even Britain's, were altogether clean. Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which revealed the atrocities of European imperialism in the Congo, was initially serialized in Blackwood's magazine in 1899. It was wildly successful and popular, and then published as a book in, in 1902. It was the first piece of writing exposing the conditions in the Congo to create buzz. Not the first piece of writing at all, but the first to create buzz in the UK. And coupled with various editorials and reports from men like Edie Morrell in British papers, pressured the British Foreign Office to finally act. Edie Morrell, who was a shipping clerk at the time, lent his expertise to the movement, comparing the official reports that Leopold's Free State published regarding shipping and rubber sales. Leopold had been complaining for years about exorbitant losses he was taking in the Congo, all in the name of his philanthropy and the IAA. Morrill revealed that, in fact, the Free State was, in Dean's words, quote, reaping a hidden fortune for its proprietor on the scale of 500,000 pounds in a single two-year period from 1899 to 1900, or over £40 million, which would be $70 million, in today's money. The reports the Free State published were quite evidently falsified. Morrill published his findings, eliciting public dismay. With information from the Aborigines Protection Society and Conrad's popular and disturbing accounts in Heart of Darkness, the United Kingdom Parliament passed a unanimous resolution protesting the mistreatment of the Congolese, as well as Leopold's trading monopoly. This forced Lansdowne to permit Roger Casement to return to the Congo to launch an investigation, and when Casement got home, he colluded with Morel, Morel, Foxborn, and others to form the Congo Reform Association in 1903. The campaign spread to include reformers in Belgium, auxiliaries in other countries, and the American Congo Reform Association, founded in 1890 by George Washington Williams, who famously wrote an open letter in 1890 to Leopold condemning the atrocities he saw in the Congo. 
And if you're interested in the longer and obviously much more involved history of the Congo Reform Association and British humanitarianism in the Congo, please, 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 please go check out Dean Pavlakis's book, British Humanitarianism and the Congo Reform Movement, 1896 to 1913. And of course, we'll link to it in the show notes um, in the uh, transcript. Um, Obviously, we're just scratching the surface of this far reaching, truly international movement. Um, because I got a little ambitious with my goals mm-hmm. for the episode. Um, but that's okay, because everyone should be reading Dean's book anyway. Yes. Um, and also, Hawk's Child's King Leopold's Ghost is, all, is another commentary on this whole situation. Sure. Casement's report delivered the disturbing goods needed to exert formal pressure on Leopold and the Belgian government. Casement exposed a variety of horrific official and unofficial Belgian tactics in the Congo, such as a policy established in 1892 in which the Congo state started requiring severed human hands to be delivered for every cartridge expended in the enforcement of free state law. This, apparently, was to prevent the wasting of cartridges. Anticipating that imperialism apologists would come back and say this was merely the way of things among the savages of the Congo, Roger Casement asked Conrad if he remembered this practice among the natives when he was there in 1890. During my sojourn in the interior, Conrad wrote, I never heard of the alleged custom of cutting off hands amongst the natives, and I am convinced that no such custom ever existed along the whole course of the main river to which my experience is limited. With Conrad's corroboration, Casement made that assertion in his final report to the Foreign Office. In the rubber collection industry, Leopold's company oversaw the workers, like the Cuba peoples, forced to work in the south of the colony, were paid in Belgian money, francs, and then in turn were taxed by the Belgian government because they're, I don't know, employees working for a Belgian company. When rubber prices plummeted in 1903, the Cuba people were paid a fraction of what they were then required to pay in taxes each year. What had initially been a transaction in which the Cuba gathered the rubber and sold it to the Europeans in a fairly equitable exchange was, by the turn of the century, an exploitative and cyclical hell facilitated by the Europeans from which the only escape for the Cuba was death. Can I pause for a second? Yeah. When you say that the hands were cut, requiring severed human hands to be delivered for every cartridge expended, what do you mean? What what cartridges? Like gun cartridges. Oh. So every time they had to, like, fire Mm -hmm. to enforce the law, Mm -hmm. they had to... Yeah, because ammunition ain't cheap. Well, well, it's not that expensive either. Um, It's not hand expensive, certainly. So it was like, if you keep making us enforce the law, mm-hmm. we're going to exact a higher and higher price or yeah. higher and higher punishment. Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure I understood. Even as the Britons hemmed and hawed and debated how much they could interfere in the affairs of another sovereign European nation, G. Wilkers, that sounds like something they might do again later on in a few years, mm-hmm. the indigenous peoples of the Congo continued to suffer. And as they had from the first incursions of Europeans into their territories to resist. By 1904, the same year of Casement's Foreign Office report, a religious movement led by a medicine man named Ekpili Kapili grew popular in the northern regions of the Cuba lands. Ekpili Kapili promised the people who joined his cult that the Tonga Tonga charm he gave them to wear would protect them from Belgian bullets, as long as they didn't eat European salt, wear European textiles, or eat pygmy antelope. The European products make sense, but we're not totally sure why about the pygmy antelope. All I can think of is that he thought they were cute and he didn't want people to eat them. Because, of course... They are cute. One of the... Are they like dick dicks? Yeah. They're like cute little... Little bitty. Like pudgy kind of. Um, One of the side effects of this entire rubber operation was that the... Cuba people had to work so much that they neglected growing their own food, ah. subsistence level farming. Oh, so they so, were hunting. So they were hunting these native that species. they hadn't typically eaten, eaten. before. Exactly. Ah, so a return, yeah. trying to get a return back to 
traditional, traditional ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me very much of the ghost dance mm-hmm. and the ghost dance shirt. I mean, we've talked about this before because isn't there also in the Boxer Rebellion? Yeah. Yeah. Social tensions were high, Tonga Tonga was popular, but the tide did not turn until the Cuba king, Kwetape, added his support to the movement. King Kwetape, who'd largely supported Belgian company men during his rule, grew frustrated with the way the Belgians treated him as a subordinate. In September of 1904, he had been arrested and detained for being late to a meeting with a state official. Up to that point, he had been attempting to prevent the spread of Tonga Tonga in the north to the center of the kingdom. After his detainment, he was only released on the word of the Belgian official. He invited Ekpili Kapili to the capital. He refused to pay any more taxes to the Europeans, ordered all Europeans out of his realm, and paid the medicine man to spread the Tonga Tonga charm to all of his people. A well-organized general revolt led by King Kwetape broke out in November of 1904. Groups of Cuba attached and overran European stations all along the Kasai River. The Cuba had no guns, and the Congolese military and armed missionaries and merchants easily defeated the Cuba whenever they clashed. Initial defeats, however, did not always deter the Cuba. Some came back again and again to attack. In the end, though, the rebellion was crushed. While defeated, uh, though it turned out that the Tonga Tonga Rebellion came at a relatively fortuitous time. Quetape, at least in part because of the external pressure on Leopold from other Western powers, like the British um, after the casement report was filed, was able to negotiate with the Belgian government to shift the control of the colony out of the hands of the privately owned company to the Belgian government, which would, at least in part address the mistreatment of the Cuba and other Congolese peoples. Leopold sold the Congo Free State to Belgium in 1908. The new British Liberal Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, who had committed to reform in 1906, along with the Congo Reform Association, persisted in their efforts to convince Belgium to fix Leopold's system. Finally, notes Pavlakis, In 1913, Gray and the association concluded that Belgium had reformed the administration sufficiently to justify ending the campaign. Thereafter, the rubber company was owned by the Belgian government and the Cuba kings, though divested of any real power, as the Congo was thereafter a formal colony of Belgium, cooperated with the Belgian state until Congolese independence in the 1960s. The long-term and devastating effects of European imperialism in places like the Congo cannot be exaggerated. Historians estimate that between 1885 and 1907, the Congo's population declined by 50% or more. That's probably a conservative estimate, but even if we say that it's an overestimation, it still changed the sociocultural, political, and economic structure of the Congo Basin forever. As noted by historian Barry Morton, the cause of this catastrophe is simple. Leopold sought to extract the maximum amount of wealth out of the Congo as quickly as possible. He did so with no regard for the life, land, and livelihood of the people who lived there, people he never actually met, and land he never actually visited. The people of the Congo, forced to labor in rubber extraction and ivory collection ventures, were forced to neglect subsistence activities. Those who resisted were executed. Entire communities starved or fled, disease spread, and mortality increased rapidly while life expectancy and birth rates plunged. Here again is the unreasonably high price for the cruel, thoughtless self-indulgence of a single white man. Henry Morton Stanley died before Roger Casement published his findings on the Congo. It actually spent the last decade of his life sort of middling his way to oblivion as a parliamentarian and husband in London. Joseph Conrad, despite his clear misgivings about colonialism, declined joining the Congo Reform Association in efforts to pressure the Belgians to change because he grew so disaffected by the entire imperialism thing that he thought there was no coming back from it and no point in trying. Roger Casement who dedicated his life to exposing the injustices of imperialism, 
first in the Congo, then in British rubber exploitation in Peru, and finally as a member of the Irish Republican Army responsible for the Easter Rising in 1916. Ultimately, he was arrested for treason. He was a British hero, though, and initially a wave of supporters called for his release. But after the British government leaked his personal travel journals, which recorded all of his sexual encounters with other men, the letters of support stopped, and even his old friend Joseph Conrad didn't speak up when they sent him to the gallows, executed as a traitor. Conrad. I know. All of them. So, since you mentioned ghost shirts, um, this is like sort of tangential, but... The Tonga Tonga is something that I love teaching students about. Mm -hmm. um, I actually usually pair it with the Boxer Rebellion, where the rebels used martial arts movements to prepare their bodies to be bulletproof. Right. Um, the same as the Tonga Tonga charm. And there's another resistance movement in German East Africa in 1905 that has a similar magical charm to protect them from bullets, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and the, the ghost shirt. For in the, ghost the Native dance. Americans, yep. right. Um, all of these movements happen at this really particular moment, I think, when European modernity has crushed so mm -hmm. much out of the bodies and souls of colonized peoples that I love engaging students on this discussion of magic and belief and religion and how powerful hope can be in whatever form it takes, um, whether like doing the rosary beads before facing mm -hmm. an opposing army or ingesting a charm to protect you from bullets. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, that's a powerful moment whenever I teach the U S to the second half of the U S core um, talking about the ghost dance, because it's, it's, Often, I find, at least with the ghost dance, it's people who have nothing left to lose, right? They've, right. they've lost, they're yeah. at the end of their rope. Mm -hmm. And someone comes, and I think it's easy for us to dismiss this as like poppycock or whatever, but someone comes as a prophet mm -hmm. and tells them, I have had a vision, and vision's incredibly important in Native American cultures, right? Yeah. I've had a vision, and if only we do these things. Right. Like with the Tonga Tonga, like right. don't eat these particular things. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. Do, you know, and we will not only be victorious, but we're going to return things back to how they were before. Mm -hmm. And like I can't I've never been in a situation where things were that desperate. But I mean, I can on, I can obviously see how that would be easy to believe. Yeah. You know, or that you would want to believe it so badly, mm -hmm. you know. In, I feel that way really about all religion. So I don't think you even need desperation because people believe in higher powers and whatever in, you know, the smaller desperations of our lives, mm -hmm. whether it's losing loved ones or not being able to conceive children or whatever mm -hmm. um, seems to trouble us. Yeah, I mean, this is we we talked about this in the episode on on space exploration too, right? right? This is Carl Sagan's point: is mm -hmm. that we've always had these cosmologies to sort of comfort us. Yes, and he refers to this as sort of like thinking like children, mm -hmm. and science has forced us to think like adults. Yeah, and we don't like that. Like, it's a lot harder to accept. It's a lot harder to accept that uh, you know it's you are oppressed and you yeah. have no power, and it's it's much more comforting to believe that there's something that can help you or that there's something that can explain, like you said, like the, the pain in your life. Like, yeah. well, my husband, my father, my child died because God wanted them back. Like, you know, you always hear that trope about like, God wanted them with him for some reason. You right. Know? And you're just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's okay, that's not how God works, but all right. <laughs> and I should say, I should come out that, like, I am the one person who is a person of faith in this group of four. Coming out. Coming out, yep. So this is, you know, this is, like, a constant sort of... this. I feel like we have conversations like this occasionally yeah. in our episodes. But One of the things that I try to impress upon students is because we're talking about magic and making you impervious to bullets, which... Mm -hmm. To modern thinkers, seems, seems ludicrous, yeah, right. ridiculous, right? But is it based on all the? I mean, conspiracy theories that people believe, right? right? That people can can make themselves believe anything, right? And it's certainly historically contingent about what factors might shape what they do believe, right? But it's you know there there are people in 
rural Britain that were hanging people as witches in the 1940s. So it's like, these are not something far past and primitive or stupid. They're just, they're just different ways of believing. Right. And they're important to what makes us human. Right. Yeah. I mean, with the, the ghost dance and the ghost shirt, I mean, it's, it fits into the belief system that already exists. Mm -hmm. So to us, like if we went outside of this house right now and someone walked up to us and was like, yo dudes, here's this shirt that you can put on and there it's going to make you impervious bullets. You'd be like, that guy's crazy. Unless it's a Kevlar like, vest. Well, okay. But like the, the, the guy's name is the, the prophet's name is Wovica was selling something that fit into mm-hmm. the, my, the, the worldview that these people already had. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one thing that actually kind of freaks me out sometimes is because like cult leaders are very good at doing this. Yes. And I'm not comparing Wovica to a cult leader. I'm saying that in today's society, I think we often still see this. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like, yeah, today is the 40th anniversary of the Jonestown massacre. Yep. Um, you know, and he was someone who was very good at taking a mainstream sort of progressive Christian message mm-hmm. to get people to join him. And then actually sort of like, Underneath it was this other thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's plugging it into a pre-existing kind of worldview. Yeah, that, absolutely. That it is really powerful. Powerful for good and then sometimes powerful for bad, too. Yeah, scary. Yeah. And that was tangential, but really what I hope this episode is about is like this, what did I write? Adventure tourism of exotic places. Yeah. And that's, and it's problematicness and it's yeah. belittlingness. In the Congo, it's devastating but even, you know, like Peace Corps yeah. and the sort of humanitarian tourism, something yeah, like that. Yeah, like right? white savior tur- tourism yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of things. Yeah, where like white girls will go to, you know, Kenya or something and take selfies Pictures. with little yeah. black children and be like, I'm single-handedly saving the world. Yes. And then like go back to their college in Indiana and like right. do and nothing. Right. Never think of it yeah. again. I mean this is very interesting to me. Not so much the humanitarian tourism, but like my husband and my Mm father-in-law have both been my father-in-law several times. My husband once have been to South Africa to go on safari. Right. Um, Oh yeah. That. And, and that's a very complex thing, right? Because uh, on the one hand, right? Like it's very transparent for a lot of people that that's wrong. Like, they don't like the hunting of big animals, of a big game. I also think that that's a very American way of looking at it because there are businesses in South Africa that are run. Granted, some there's a racial element there, too. Yeah. Right. Um, there that are run that that keep entire communities alive based on hunting. Right. Mm-hmm. There are laws that control what just like in New York State, what you can shoot and what you can't shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just like white guys go into the wilderness and like just randomly kill elephants. Right. Um, although there is a poaching problem. It's not typically the not typically I'm not saying not never, but not typically the white hunters that are doing that or the European or American hunters that are doing that. Um, but on the other hand, like there's some shit there. Right. Like, Yeah non-Africans coming into this place and like extracting product from it that they take back to their uh, offices in Pittsburgh and have, you know, displayed on the wall. And on the one hand, you're contributing to that economy. On the other hand, you're kind of renewing that practice of extracting benefit from African countries and and taking it back with you. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's, it's complex and it's still, I think that, I mean, hunting is kind of a new updated version of, of some of, of this, all this, you know, Stanley yeah. and Conrad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's also an element of how those economies even are created. They're created right. by demand. So right. there's that too. Right. Yeah. So it's not just that like. Oh, American hunters are going and and like taking part in a, an economy that would have existed without them. Like it right, exists right, right. because of them. Because of them, exactly. So that's weird yes. and problematic too. Right. Right. But at the same time, now it's there and it 
it relies on European and, and American hunters to come in and do that. I mean, there are people that that's their job. Right. Um, and in a way, at least what they would tell you is that that helps to fund the conservation efforts in some of those places that the, the conservation um, and of course it has to do with, with um, wildlife management too. Right. Mm-hmm. Like just like how in America you have to like, you know, in New York state, there's a certain number of doe tags right. every season because sure. you need to call the, the, the um, herd. Yeah. Um, there are similar calculations in South Africa. Right. And as much as, you know, Americans would like to have it be like just a, lion king paradise where animals live Roam by free. themselves yeah. right that's not the reality and there People is a, there. yeah there is there there are issues about herd management right mm-hmm. that that people in those those countries have to deal with so yeah yeah it's it's immensely complex yeah it's pretty strange but it also yeah like this it's a it's a weird african tourism yeah. thing yeah and people have strong feelings about it <laughs> yes as they should. I mean, it's a it's complex. I like this quote from Paul Thoreau, who, when reviewing the biography of Henry uh, Morton Stanley, writes, Poor Africa, the happy hunting ground of the mythomaniac, the rock star buffing up his or her image, the missionary with a faith to sell, the child buyer, the retailer of dirty drugs or toxic cigarettes, mm. the editor in search of a scoop, the empire builder, the aid worker, the mm-hmm. tycoon wishing to rid himself of his millions, the school builder with a bucket of patronage, the experimenting economist, the diamond merchant, the oil executive, the explorer, the slave trader, the eco-tourist, the adventure traveler, the bird watcher, the travel writer, the escapee, the colonial and his crapulosities, the banker, the busybody, the Mandela sniffer, the political fantasist, the buccaneer, and your cousin, the Peace Corps volunteer. Oh, and the atoner, of whom Thoreau observed in a skeptical essay, now if anything ail a man so that he does not perform his functions, if he has committed some heinous sin and partially repents, what does he do? He sets about reforming the world. Thoreau, who had Africa specifically in mind, added, do you hear it, E. Wallace? Hmm. Poor Africa, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty powerful because mm-hmm. it's, I mean, I think, at least I, I know a couple of those people. Yeah. I know a couple of them. It's you pretty know? spot on. Yeah, it's really spot on. Um, and one last, one other thing that I, that this made me think of yeah. is just in the past couple of weeks, Melania Trump went on her one of her first trips as first lady and went to Africa, went to a game preserve. Did you see this? Mm-mm. These pictures went to a, I think it was a game preserve to look at baby elephants and had a white um, like linen suit on and a pith helmet. Great. And she has said in the past, like, remember when she wore that jacket that said, I don't really care. Do you? Mm-hmm. She has said that nothing she wears is by accident Mm -hmm. and we know that she's surrounded by stylists Mm -hmm. and and people vetted that outfit and presidents don't just get to wear whatever they i mean they wear whatever they want but people are constantly thinking about how is this going to be interpreted how is your image going to be interpreted um and yeah she went with a a colonial costume yeah and and then sort of laughed it off. Um, yeah, it, it was something else. Not the Justin Trudeau in looking ridiculous in local customary Indian wear, but right. the opposite. Yes. I'm going to dress like yes. an imperialist. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Exactly. America. Yep. Um, well. On that, on that note, on that note, I will say that I'm gonna include at the bottom of um, the transcript the original satirical poem about um, Cecil Rhodes that accompanies that that image mm-hmm. that I first started with. We're not gonna read it here, even though it would lighten the mood considerably. Um, but maybe we'll also save it for the time when we do a biography of Cecil Rhodes. Oh yeah, that would be great. What a yeah. What a card. Yeah. And talk about, I mean, Rhodesia, too. I yeah. mean, uh, that's a 
another topic that has modern, you know, echoes. The, mm-hmm. the, the guy who committed the shooting in Charleston had a patch for the nation of Rhodesia on his coat. Super. Yeah. Just great. Yep. But if this podcast episode has uh, piqued your interest, we encourage you to check out the the images, this this uh, poem that we're going to include in the transcript uh, at digpodcast.org. And that'll include all of the sources that I use to write this this episode. Um, we always appreciate your listens and your yes, support. Yes, we do. Um, make sure to leave us a, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest. Uh, to stay up to date and connect with us. Join our Facebook group. Yes, please. It's really fun. We love getting to know you. Yes. Uh, you know, learning how you, uh, what you do for a living and why you're interested in history and what episodes you like and what you yeah. want to hear more or less of. We love it. Uh, yes. Dig History Pod Squad on Facebook. And if you're so inclined, you can contribute to our Patreon account so that we can keep this baby going. Yeah, man. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Philanthropic. Philanthropic Association. By his experiences on that, Congos. I started to walk away too soon. <laughs> Is it moral or morale? I don't know. Flawed way having characters like the people on Will and Grace and mm-hmm. Ellen and um, there's there's more Murphy like Brown the, the uh, Murphy Brown no yeah no yeah she's not gay and Murphy Brown nobody on Murphy Brown is gay Murphy Brown's character is not gay no who am I thinking of not Murphy Brown. <laughs>